Let's turn our Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. I don't know if you went shopping on uh, Friday, but uh, if you did, I know your life got uh, pretty hectic on that day. And even without that, this is the time of year when things uh, really get busy for most people during this time of Advent. Now, I've come up with at least uh, one answer for that. Uh, My calendar is cleared for the rest of the month until January. That's because I lost my calendar. (laughs) I I know I got a wedding sometime and Christmas Eve service, but beyond that, uh, uh, I'm I don't know, so if I have an appointment with any of you, feel free to email me, and uh, feel free to send me reminders and bear with me beyond that. But in terms of the busyness, I I can't, I really don't suggest my way of uh, dealing with that, but in terms of the busyness of your life, we are going to address it in one way here in the next few weeks during Advent. And that is, we're not going to go with information overload in these weeks, but we are going to focus upon one sentence that crosses over two brief verses. But in that, you will see the glorious gospel and doctrine of the Incarnation and what it means to us. Now, today, I'm going to read you a little bit of the context. We will be uh, focusing upon verse 4 and 5, but uh, let's read beginning in verse 1 in Galatians 4. It's the Apostle Paul. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, indeed, for many here today, this is an extremely busy time. And so we ask that you would help us, especially in these next few moments, not to focus on the things that we have done this past weekend, or the things that we'll be doing next week or even later today, but instead 
to focus upon the Lord Jesus. Will you give us ears to hear your spirit as he speaks to our heart? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there are uh, a lot of folks at this point that are talking about economics and economic principle. And uh, a lot of them thinking in very theoretical forms, others in very practical ways. There is uh, one view, and that was Adam Smith who promoted uh, the Enlightenment economics. Now, I'm not an economist. We're not going to discuss that. But there is a phrase that he uses that I am fascinated by. He talks about an invisible hand that cannot be measured, it cannot be put into a a laboratory and proven, but it is as real as the things that are going on around us, and that invisible hand is behind all of human history. Now, I would agree with him, although I don't think I would talk about an invisible hand in the same way he does. You see, we would say instead it is God, that's where the hand comes from, and the actions that he deals with are his good providence. Our confession of faith puts it this way. Providence is God's most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. All his creatures and all their actions. Now, some people don't like that. Some people hear that and they say, well, I'm not so sure that I'm on board with God being in control of everything because there are some things out there that I just don't like what I'm seeing. Today, we're going to take a look at this and we're going to see in, in particular His providence as it deals with the birth of Jesus and I trust that as we do that, we will see that His providence is indeed good. It is what is best for us as His people. So let's uh, take a look at, uh, in particular, this phrase, in the fullness of time. What was Paul saying there? Why did God inspire him to use that kind of a phrase? What was it about the time when Jesus uh, was born that he considered it to be in the fullness of time? Uh, We're going to look at it from several angles. Uh, Let's start out with uh, uh, the political preparation. Now, again, you may say, wait a minute. You mean God deals with governments? Are you going to tell me that? That's exactly where we have to start. In fact, in Romans 13, he puts it this way. For there is no authority except that which God 
has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. That, that means in our country too. You know what that does for me? At least one thing it does is it, it helps uh, another portion of Scripture make sense when it says that we are to uh, pray for kings and those in authority over us. That's why I pray for our president every single day. I have a small picture of him in my office, so I will remember to do that every day. Why? Because he is there for one reason. Because God put him there. And so, we ought to be obedient to the one who put him there and pray for him. Over in Isaiah uh, chapter 40, it says, He, meaning God, brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. Now, I know some really wonder about that. People look at various governments, some look at our own, some look at other governments around the world, and they say, how can we possibly say that God is in control when that kind of a government is in control? Well, understand that when Romans 13 was written, it was the Roman government that was in control. And that was the one in control when it was talked about as being in the fullness of time. To me, if anything, it goes to prove his providence all the more when he works through what some would consider an unrighteous or a corrupt government and his purpose takes place. Think about uh, the Roman control. During that time, uh, the Roman Empire was in its full glory. There was some sense of a a unity of mankind, even though over some it would have been a forced kind of unity. The whole Mediterranean basin uh, was governed by the one system of law. Politically, it was Roman. Now, Roman citizenship really meant something. In fact, we see that uh, here you have the privileges of Roman citizenship that actually we know of from the book of Acts, serve to advance the gospel. Let me give you an example in that with uh, the Apostle Paul. He invoked his privilege of citizenship and he was able to continue on in his ministry because of that. You have what was called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And so that uh, overall, though they were uh, often conquering others, it caused a stability that hadn't been seen for some time. It encouraged a progress. Uh, Law and order prevailed. There virtually were no pirates during that time because of the uh, strong law and order, which, by the way, made travel much easier and much better which enabled the gospel to spread in an easier way. Also, because the Roman army was uh, all over the place, when one of the soldiers would come to Christ, 
and then they were stationed somewhere else in a, another uh, part of the Roman Empire that later become, became a different country. It was as if the Roman government was paying for a missionary to go because the gospel spread, even because of Rome being in control. He had the famous Roman roads, which were the best of the day, some of them surviving today. I, I had to wonder whether any of our roads will be surviving that long from now if uh, they're not maintained. But we, even, even when we've been in England, we have seen portions of the Roman roads in England and of uh, Roman walls in England. And so they went clear over there to the west, went far to the east, and it made travel relatively easy and relatively safe. What about intellectually? Well, in terms of uh, intellectual preparation, there was the Greek culture. Now, the Romans were in control politically, but that actually preserved Greek culture. And that ended up being a positive thing. In fact, uh, the Roman Empire saved that culture. Now, that was important for several reasons. One was there was a common language. Everywhere people went, Greek was spoken. Now, I know that's much to the dismay of a lot of seminary students and a lot of Bible college students who had to learn Greek it's called Koine Greek, which was the, the Greek of the common man of the people. But that's what the New Testament was written in. But think of it this way and compare it to today. For instance, now when we send out missionaries, they have to spend a significant amount of time in language school. Some say that it's actually after their first term, after their first four or five years, then when they go back, then they are beginning to get a good handle on the language to the point where they can preach or teach or share the gospel and begin to think in that language. It takes a great deal of time and effort for that in this day when Jesus was born. You could go anywhere in the Roman Empire and immediately speak the language of the people. And so the gospel was able to spread in the fullness of time. Then there was Greek philosophy. Now some of you are going to say, wait a minute, I had philosophy. You're not going to tell me that was positive for Christianity. I remember thinking that when I took philosophy, that wow, this is... This is uh, so far in some ways from uh, uh, Christianity. And yet, you had, for instance, uh, Socrates, who said, know thyself. And you know what happened? People began to take him seriously. And so they began to look inwardly to get to know themselves and they didn't like what they found. They found that there was a lack of answers inside of themselves. They found that 
the kinds of things that they were dealing with didn't come just from within, that there were great limits. And for many, it led to a skepticism because those deep uh, questions of the human soul were left unanswered. Now, into that comes the light of the gospel. You see how bright it is against that dark uh, backdrop? We each week will light another candle, and if it were completely dark in here, we would, we would get the idea of how uh, the closer we get to the celebration of when Christ was born, the lighter it becomes. And that's the whole idea. The light of the gospel came into this great darkness. What about religious preparation? Well, once again, you have the Greek... Uh, Religions, they had every kind of God. You've read Greek mythology and that kind of a thing. And, and so again, you might say, well, you know, why, why is that going to be helpful? They, they'll worship just anything. Well, we see, again, God using it in Acts 17. Paul is in Athens, the home of the Greek gods. It says, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walk around and look carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription. Here's the inscription. To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. You see, here is God using this, uh, this empty altar. All of theirs really were empty, but they thought there were gods behind them. But somewhere deep in their heart, they knew there was someone else that we don't know. And Paul said, let me tell you about this God. He is the true and the living God who is not some piece of stone, but he has come to serve you. He has lived among us. He rose from the dead and he redeemed his people from their sins. What news that was for those who had these many gods who could do nothing for them. Well, what about the Romans? Well, the Romans had the cult of uh, Roman emperor worship. Well, that had its own problems too, didn't it? Because you had all of these Roman emperors who they were corrupt and the people knew they cor- were corrupt and they knew they were corrupt, but those, they proclaimed themselves to be gods and then the other problem is they kept dying. And another one came in, just as corrupt, sometimes much worse. Their gods were morally unspeakable. And that spread into the culture of Rome, into society. Immorality was open. Things like infanticide, the killing of infants, was rampant. 
One writer said, baby skeletons by the cartload could be taken from the bottom of the Tiber River. Seneca, the Roman writer, declared, vice no longer hides itself, it stalks forth before all eyes. Innocence is no longer rare. It has ceased to exist. It was a a horrid time in terms of morality. There was no hope. There was despair. Suicide was rampant in the Roman Empire. And into this came the glorious gospel of Christ. You had the Jews then on the other hand, religiously speaking, Well, they were monotheists. They only had one God, of course, as dictated by the Old Testament. They were looking for the coming Messiah. They had uh, basically a pure ethic that came from the Old Testament. They had the Old Testament telling of Christ and his coming. They established synagogues, which became a positive thing because the apostles could go into any town and they could go into the synagogue and they could preach the gospel from that synagogue with a gathering of people that were awaiting the Messiah. And yet, for them, there was a hollowness. There wasn't any vibrancy in their religion at this point. You see, there'd been a period of silence where they had heard nothing from their God 400 years, four centuries where they heard nothing. And they waited and continued to wait. All of those things served as the background that God called the fullness of time the time for the Messiah, the truth, to arrive. Now, some of you may say, well, you know, it was just a coincidence. It all just kind of happened around the same time. Maybe, except we have another factor. And that is the prophecies about Jesus himself. We have some 60-plus prophecies about Jesus' coming. All of them fulfilled in him. Coincidence? Well, some would want to believe that too. Now, look, I'm, I'm no statistician. I don't think like a statistician, and so I've got to rely on those who are. Dr. Peter Stoner has done a study of this. And he, uh, what he did was he took uh, eight prophecies. And by the way, his, uh, his methodology and so on was checked and affirmed by a number of other statisticians. And uh, he took eight prophecies. And he said, what are the chances of all of these eight prophecies coming true on one man By coincidence, he said, from the beginning until his present day. And so he 
did all the variables and so on. And he came up with this number. 10 to the 17th power. Now, that might not mean a whole lot to you. But here's what it is. 10 with then 17 zeros after that. That's a big number. He knew that people like me couldn't really grasp that number. Might say, oh, well, wow, you know, that's, that looks like it must be a big number. And so he decided to try to describe it. He said, okay, let's say you take 10 to the 17th power silver dollars. Here's what you could do with it. You take those, that many silver dollars and you pour them out on the state of Texas. It would be two feet thick in silver dollars. Begins to make more sense. Wow, that's, that's a lot of silver dollars. Texans would be happy, I'm sure. And then he says what you do is you take one of those silver dollars and you mark it. And then you put it out somewhere randomly. And then you stir them all up. Now, I don't think they were able to try this out or anything and practice this. I'm not sure how they could do this. But they said, then you stir them all up, mix them up randomly. And he said, then you take somebody and you put them at the edge of the state of Texas and you blindfold them. And you say, you may walk as far as you want in any direction that you want. And then you reach down and point to one silver dollar and pick it up and you say, this is the one. He said, the probability of someone doing that is 10 to the 17th power. Now, remember what I said earlier? He did that with eight prophecies. They realized there were a lot more than eight prophecies. And so he said, well, what about 48? And so they continued with the same formula, and it was 10 to the 157th power. I don't even have an illustration of what that would be. And as I said, there were 60-plus prophecies, all fulfilled in Jesus. What's the chance of that happening by coincidence? Not a chance. Now, at some point, you've just got to take it by faith. But don't imply it would be the intelligent thing to think that these all came together by chance. It happened because of God's hand of providence. Now, what's all that mean to us in terms of uh, God's providence? Let me give you two applications. One is, I think that it's harder to believe in God's providence than not to. Now, here's why. Because as human beings, we want to be in control. We don't like the idea that, that God's in control. We want to be in control. And so it becomes harder to believe. And then secondly, it's harder because at any point we can look around and we can say, you know, there's things going on that I can't reconcile with 
an all-wise and all-loving God and him being in control of what's going on. And so, quite freely, I'll admit it's, it's hard at times to believe in his providence. But at the same time, I want to quickly say, it's better to believe because it's more comforting to believe in God's providence. Because of prayer? Look, if you don't believe that God is in control of all things, you don't need to be praying. There's no point to it. If if you don't know that he can do what you ask for, then there's no point in praying. Don't, Don't act like, well, it's nice therapy for me or makes others happy. It's not worth it if he's not in control. But further... It's more comforting in terms of facing tomorrow. See, we don't have to do it like the Stoic that that would just say, well, I'll face it because I have to, and I'll get through it in my own strength. That doesn't take you very far. If you've ever tried that, you know that. It may get you through tomorrow, but there's going to come a day you can't do it in your own strength. And so instead, we don't have to face it that way, but we, we face it instead like a child. You know, this weekend I got to spend time with our new granddaughter. I don't know when they get over this in terms of uh, trusting, but you know what? At this point, she's she's still tiny. She don't worry about tomorrow. She doesn't even worry about later today. You know why? Because she's got her mom and dad. And she knows they're taking care of everything. She's just happy as she can be because of that. And you know what? This passage says we, we're that child. We ought to be. And if God's in control, like we say, then we need to be like that child. Not consuming ourselves with worrying about tomorrow, but saying, look, I know who's in control here. And I know he will always do what's best for me because I'm his child. What he says will take place. If he is in control, then you have no comfort in life or death. If God's not in control, you've got no assurance whatsoever. Let me tell you one more thing. There was in Palestine a little town called Bethlehem. Oh, I said it right, Bethlehem. It was a town that was named after a Canaanite god of war, Lehum. Beth means place of or dwelling place of. And so it was a town that was the dwelling place of the God of war. When the Jews had their conquest of Palestine and took over that area, they changed the name from that blasphemous name of that Canaanitish God, Lahum. And they changed it to Lahem, 
means bread. The place or the dwelling of bread. And so in God's providence, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, was born in the town that once was the home of the God of war. In God's providence, the one who would later say, I am the bread of life, came from the place of bread. May God grant his comfort because of his good providence that is always best for his children. Let's pray together.